Uh, compassion. Uh, compassion, it's a word whose closest neighbour is love, a word that demands an emotional reaction, a word that we want to hear when those close to us are receiving some form of care, and it's a word that's been repeated in the NHS probably more times than any other uh, during the course of the last year. But it's been said in all the wrong ways, because in repeating it, it's nearly always come after the words, a lack of. So a lack of compassion has been the four words that have been used to describe the NHS. It's the NHS that uh, we work in, uh, that we've helped build, and that we're part of today. And I start with that because uh, any leadership debate has to start with that as the context. Uh, that's the situation for us at the moment. Now, I've got this as a title. Uh, Women in Leadership, the Challenges and Opportunities for Men. Now, have you ever accepted an invitation uh, for something, and six months ago it sounded like a good idea? And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I looked at the topic and I thought, that's, that's a nice topic, isn't it? That's intriguing. Um, but as I got closer and saw the conference programme and saw that I was the only male speaker, and I think uh, the only male delegate, is that... Uh, no, no? Oh, yes, there we go. Thank two of us uh, uh, coming through there. Uh, yeah, I did start to, uh, to regret it. I mean, uh, you know, following someone like Diane, it made me think about why, why have I been involved in this? You know, am I, have I been asked because I'm someone that understands this issue? You know, am I here as a provocateur? of some sort, or uh, someone that demonstrates good qualities, maybe, or as a, as a form of uh, role model, or I've actually been set up, uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, uh, coming. And uh, it's interesting, when Diane was, uh, was talking, I also sort of uh, grew up in local authorities in the, uh, the mid-80s, and when I first got involved in quality and diversity, there was a debate going on in one of the meetings, and someone said to one of the panellists, uh, what did they think of women that they wanted it sorry what they asked the uh, the, the panelists what did they think of women that wanted equality with men and the panelists said underachievers <laughs> <laughs> so that was my introduction but i hope to be provoking and i hope to be honest and uh, maybe try and frame some of the debate uh, to come uh, later today but you can't start a debate without that uh, context and that compassion introduction i gave uh, like it or not, is the context that we face. And it may seem uh, unfair uh, that the events in parts of one hospital five years ago has come to see how people see the NHS today. But that's the reality that we have. And as uh, leaders, male and female, we're going to be judged uh, on whether we had the humility to accept our part in that problem, whether we had the bottle to face up to that, and whether we had the leadership skills uh, to do something about it. And it has been a sort of harrowing event. I, I'm, as I sort of see the events of uh, Mid-Staffordshire and the emotional reaction that I got, I'm reminded of... Um, I don't know, do people know the story of Shoeless Joe Jackson? <coughs> so Shoeless Joe Jackson was a baseball player at uh, the turn of last century in America. He played for the Chicago uh, White Sox. He grew up never learning to read or write, and he played without uh, shoes, hence Shoeless Joe Jackson. And he was the... He was the, the idol, the hero of his day. He was the sporting icon of that era. I guess he was the David Beckham of that time in terms of how people would look at him. And in 1918, as he was playing for the uh, Chicago White Shops, there was a, uh, a match-fixing scandal. And Shoeless Joe Jackson, this hero, and seven others got charged with match-fixing. And uh, as they were coming out of the court case uh, afterwards, the crowds all gathered uh, sort of outside to see what's uh, gone on. And I've sort of got this picture in my mind of those black and white photos with the, you know, the light bulbs sort of flashing off and those big flash uh, photographers. And there's a young lad right at the start, right at the front of the crowd. And as Shoeless Joe Jackson comes out, he's there to shout out, say it ain't so, Joe, say it ain't so. 
And he couldn't, he couldn't comprehend that his hero, his idol, had been caught up in something like that. Just, it, it just was beyond his comprehension. And I think for a lot of us in the NHS, when we read those sort of mid-Staffordshire reviews, you sort of cry out, don't you? Say it ain't so. Tell me that didn't happen. But it, it did happen in the NHS, and we have to accept our part in that, and that's whether we're uh, black or white or straight or gay or male or female. So why is that context so important for this conversation that we're going to have today? Well, some of you will know Michael West uh, from the King's Fund, but also a professor of organisational psychology at Lancaster University. And he recently wrote that leadership is the embodiment of culture. So leadership is the embodiment of culture. Now, that's important because if that is true, it tells us that having more women leaders isn't just an issue of equality. (coughs) So having more women leaders isn't just an issue of equality. Now, equality is important. It's very important. And that's why the debate is often framed around the sort of issue of fairness. You know, how can it be that a workforce like the NHS made up with a majority female workforce has so few, relatively few, uh, female leaders? And not just in the NHS that that happens. Uh, So the Equality and Human Rights Commission report uh, from 2011, Sex and Power, measured the number of women... Uh, in positions of power and influence across 27 different occupational uh, categories. And that report calculated that at the current rate of change, it would take around 70 years to reach an equal number of men and women directors on the FTSE 100 companies. Uh, 70 years before there was an equal number of men and women in Parliament. Uh, That's 14 more general elections, just for the uh, the count. So so we'll stay stay with you, uh, uh, Diane. Hold in. Uh, there, but uh, uh, figures from that report that uh, uh, reveal that while women are graduating from university in increasing numbers and achieve better degree results, and despite level pegging with men in their twenties at the same rate, they still get trapped in those levels below management. I'm going to uh, read out a list of numbers uh, now, but they're all important. I think it's worth doing them just to give the sort of context of the problem uh, that we have in uh, society. So, in politics, uh, 22% of uh, MPs are women. of cabinet members, 21% of the House of Lords, 13% of local authority leaders. If you look at business, 13% FTSE 100 companies, 8% of directors in FTSE 250 companies. So you might say, well, what about the software aspect? You know, what about sort of media and those sorts of things? Well, 10% of national newspaper editors are women, uh, 7% of chief executives of media companies in the FTSE 350, and 26% directors of major museums and galleries. Public and voluntary sector must be better, surely. 13% senior members in the judiciary, 23% of local authority chief executives, 35% of ed teachers at secondary schools, 14% of university vice-chancellors, and 33% of health trust chief executives. Not one number to boast about in all of those. So what's the solution about that? You know, is, that is this an issue of positive action, quotas around this? Uh, Well, I think, encouragingly, the pace of change in the private sector has increased, evidenced by the uh, Lord Davis 2013 update report. So in the first six months after his initial report, 22% of executive director appointments went to women. That's rising to 28% in March of last year, March 2012, and currently at 44% of recruitment. So that's one in two directorships near enough. So some 22% of non-executive directors are held by women, and we have only eight all-male boards left in the FTSE uh, 100. Eight. Now, that's only. You know, still, 
But based on that progress, then something like 37% of executive directorships within the FTSE 100 would be held by women by 2020, which is a little shy of the 40% target set by Viviana Reading, who's the, uh, the Vice President of the European uh, Commission. So there's been some uh, progress made uh, in those, uh, but still uh, very worrying uh, statistics. And apologies if that felt like a list, but I, I think it's important to get that sort of context uh, across. Uh, that progress, by the way, in the UK has been made without the need for quotas. Uh, so some European countries, like uh, Norway, have introduced legislation about having a quota about the percentage of women on uh, boards. And uh, for those of you that watch sort of a Scandinavian drama like Borgen, you'll see that played out uh, very sort of effectively in the way that they sort of do uh, drama on there. But I know that in Britain there is an anxiety about quotas. Uh, so uh, will it be seen as some form of tokenism? Uh, you know, it's been achieved to fill a target and the women aren't really competent to be able to do that and people are going to question about whether you're there on merit or not. That's the debate uh, that frames us without that. But, but in the UK, even without quota, if you look at some of the debate around this issue or the progress that's been made, the debate is now in the, yes, it is progress, but it's all a certain type of Oxbridge-graduated woman that comes in there and actually some of those statistics are because it's the same woman holding numerous non-executive director posts. So even without, even without a quota system, this debate on sort of equality and equity sort of uh, goes on. Uh, you'll have heard of the Peter Principle. Uh, so the Peter Principle was first mooted in, uh, in 1960s, and that posits uh, that people get promoted because they're competent until they reach the point at which they're no longer good at their job. But there's a guy called Professor Schuler who's come up with the reverse uh, the Paula Principle. Uh, so the Paula Principle argues that most women work below their level of competence. And the Paula, Princi the Paula Principle argues there are five elements holding women back. Uh, these are discrimination, childcare and increasingly elder care, uh, psychology... Uh, so women often adverse to putting themselves forward. Diane was saying the sort of thing about the leader of the Labour Party here, but you do get this sort of sense uh, that if men look down the list of essential characteristics and meet one out of the seven, they think I'll have a pop. If women look down them and, and missing one out of the seven, they think you're not going to be able to apply for it. You know, that sort of psychology stuff. Uh, a lack of vertical networks. It seems that men know more people higher up uh, the ladder than those. And then the fifth reason, for one reason or another, women choosing uh, to stay where they are. But I just want you to note the first one on that list again. The first one said discrimination, which I'm going to come back to. Uh, so the equality evidence does remain centre stage, I think, around some of this, but it's not the most important issue, and it's not the biggest opportunity or the biggest challenge for men, looking at my uh, title. So it's largely accepted that men and women as leaders exhibit uh, or excel or rely on certain traits. And uh, for women, these are often defined as traits like collaboration or conviction, inclusiveness, creation, mentorship. These are all sort of great desirable qualities that you would, you know, hunger after in the context of the Francis report that talked about this sort of need for a more open and transparent uh, culture that we want. Uh, and that's why, when we look at some of that, that, more women, that women, more women in leadership posts is important, not just because of the equality issue, but it's important because we know, we know that if we have more women on boards, it leads to better services. So if we have more women on boards, it leads to better services. Now, it can be argued that that's not about women per se, but about a better gender balance that you might have got on boards if you've got more women in leadership positions. But when you look at some of the evidence around this, that includes that you get better governance, uh, which is apparently linked to women's ability to better manage and control and observe risks 
in the workplace. And on that issue, I just asked you to observe. Uh, Diane gave some examples earlier, but when you've got a next discussion around a sort of senior team meeting of some uh, sort and you hear uh, the blokes going, yeah, whatever, just go for it, just go for it. And women say, well, what about this and what about that sort of issue? And you see, you can observe this. And it's not saying that one is right or wrong, but that it creates a debate about what is the risk balance that we're facing here. That's what I sort of mean by the balance issue. But you get that better governance. Uh, Improved collaboration is more evidence linked to women's tendency to be more open and inclusive. And you also get values-led decision-making, again, linked to women's tendency to operate on some sort of common principles and established, if you like, codes of conduct about how decisions are made. So the big opportunity for me and for men is that if we have more women in leadership positions, we get better decision-making and therefore better services. And that's why I do the job that I do, to get better services for patients. This isn't a threat for me as a man in that position. This is an opportunity to get this right and we provide better patient care as a result of that. So if that's the the biggest opportunity, what might be the biggest challenge uh, for men? And I think the biggest challenge is that we stop seeing the problem as a problem in women's leadership and education. So I've come to events like this where the answer at the end, the end of the day is about a women's leadership programme of some sort. We need to stop seeing it as a women's problem and start seeing some of that discrimination playing out. So it's the NHS culture that needs to change, not just loading the burden constantly on women uh, to do differently. There was a quote that you put up earlier, I think it was a classic sort of example of that. You know, uh, they, they, they need to be more confident. Uh, this is about, you know, how, how do we... Uh, look at some of that. So we need to look at that uh, sort of discrimination that's overt sometimes and some of the unconscious bias, I think, that exists in, in all of us. If I if just tell you a story that, to, to demonstrate this, um, uh, there was a, there's a story of a, uh, a father and a son and there's a tragic car accident and the father dies in the accident and the son is rushed into hospital and as they're preparing the theatre and getting it ready, the surgeon comes in and the surgeon says, stop, uh, we can't do this, I, I, I can't operate, that's my son. It's, it's a female surgeon, it's mother. But the reaction is, you know, we see surgeon, we see man. That sort of thing coming through. And if you think, oh, no, I've been there, that... Let me just play it out differently again, just about how some of this thing plays out. So same story. Uh, a father and his son. Terrible accident. The father dies in the accident. The son is rushed into hospital. And as they're preparing the theatre, a male surgeon comes in and says, I can't operate, that's my son. Gay couple. You know, the, 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 the bias that sort of exists in that. So we've got this unconscious bias, this tendency uh, to categorise and stereotype and compartmentalise people and situations is a predisposition in all of us that we tend to favour uh, certain groups and certain individuals because they are more like us or society has shown us that they're in those uh, positions. And this is an increasingly important business issue. You see more and more organisations starting to address this issue of unconscious bias. And I'm sure that if we get a better understanding of that, will shape a better discourse around this sort of issue about what's going on in the culture, not just that we load this problem onto uh, women. And I think another opportunity uh, around this is, is about social media and Twitter. I think the way we see Twitter will change our sort of gender definitions of who does what. Just look at the uh, women uh, leaders in the NHS that you've got out on Twitter now. Look about how they network, how they've been more open and collaborative uh, around that sort of issue. And I think that that will change uh, the way that we, uh, that we see that and the way that we see sort of leadership in action in that social space. 
Um, although Candice will know that I only ever mention social media in these speeches to draw more uh, <laughs> followers. <laughs> NHSED <laughs> underscore. Yeah, you know, so, got the, uh, uh, so, but the biggest, uh, so that's the, the challenge and opportunity. But the biggest opportunity for me as, as a man is, is about one of personal identity. Uh, so, if men also feel that we can adopt a different leadership style, will it stop people like me being linked to a male stereotype that I constantly fail to live up to? I was at an event the other day, and people were talking about this sort of issue. And I was sat there around the, uh, the table, and someone said, oh, you know, the problem, uh, male, stale, and pale. And I, I looked, I thought, well, don't, don't mind me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this might be a useful soundbite on the sorts of stuff, but what are you suggesting here, you know, in terms of the stale? But, but it gives us this sort of uh, a stereotype that presents this sort of hard-talking, rational uh, individual with facts and figures and national plans at the fingertips. And it even happens in HR. Uh, so uh, if someone points out that there are more male HR directors in the NHS in HR than female HR directors, people say, oh, well, that's because we need, uh, you know, sort of hard-talking, table-thumping negotiators. These are uh, tough times. Well, in my experience, that's not how negotiations work. We don't thump the table. Uh, it involves creativity and collaboration and uh, patience and a sort of engagement with a complex range of stakeholders moving things forward over a period of time, not who can bang the table uh, longest, But I get seen as that uh, stereotype that presents all men uh, as knowing the cost of everything and the value of nothing. So the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And I think I'm different to that. I, uh, I don't comply to that rational or cultural model. I think that people perhaps of my age are stuck uh, somewhere between uh, in our identity, which is trying to live up to the, uh, you know, the breadwinning role model that my father set and society wanting to create this new man-caring sort of individual and trying to adapt to that and which one is it that I'm supposed to uh, live up to. And I shouldn't be here as Chief Executive of NHS Employers. I don't fit that model. Uh, so uh, I grew up in a different country. Uh, we moved around a lot as a kid, so my education wasn't brilliant. I didn't go to university uh, from school, but I benefited from working in the NHS, and I guess other people in the public sector would say the same, and the opportunities that's presented me to learn new skills and develop my career uh, along the way. And as a result of that... I do think that I know the value of things. So uh, I've got four kids. I uh, occasionally think two of them aren't mine. I'm sure that two of them are Satan's children. Uh, but so you've got uh, sort of four children. And a few years ago, they're getting a bit older now, but a few years ago, my youngest daughter, around about this time of the year, I discovered next to her bed the note that she'd wrote to Santa. And she'd got a little picture of Santa in the corner, and it said, Dear Santa, I've been a very good girl this year. Uh, I would like a pink Walkman. Argus catalogue, page 109, <laughs> catalogue number, you know, that sort of thing. Ah, sort of thing. Or uh, my uh, youngest son, uh, we went to football. I live in uh, uh, Sheffield uh, still, and we went to a local derby game. These are sort of tense, emotional sorts of uh, environments you can imagine. I support Sheffield United, and, you know, the referee makes a difficult decision during the course of the game, and the crowd's going mad about this sort of, you know, what's going on sort of thing, and shouting at the referee and uh, questioning whether he's got a father and uh, suggesting what he might like doing in his spare time uh, coming in, uh, going on. And as we're coming out, you can sort of feel the palpable sense of sort of tension in the air. And my 10-year-old, as we walk out across the road, he puts his hand up into mine and gets hold of my hand as we uh, cross the road. Bit of security. It's not a cool thing for a 10-year-old to do, hold a dad's hand, yeah, uh, coming in. Uh, and I, I don't know, in those two incidents, I can't measure how much my love for my children increased at that time, or what it did for the quality of my life, knowing that, that that's the sort of reaction 
uh, that I got for them. And it's back to that compassion, really. It seems that all the time in this rational world that we've been looking at scorecards and charts and that sort of thing, and really the important thing is something we can't measure at all, compassion. Uh, you know, I'm sure someone will come up with a flip chart soon uh, to do it, but it's that I can't measure the increased love for my children in those situations, but I know uh, that it makes a difference. Uh, I've got uh, just my next slide, as it can go on there, just so that I also became a granddad this year. Uh, yeah, so this is my uh, grandson, uh, Bobby. Uh, you see how worried I was about this speech? If in doubt, picture of a baby. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, <laughs> coming through. Uh, but I'd love to spend more time, I'd love to spend more time at work talking about him and what that's done uh, for my life without people thinking I'm pink and fluffy and clearly can't be as rational and what are you doing working in hard negotiating stuff like NHS employers if you're talking about your, your grandchildren. So I don't see that as the, uh, uh, you know, that it's vision and direction and that sort of thing as the biggest uh, leadership uh, challenge. I think that collectively we have four things that we can bring into the workplace. I think collectively uh, the four things the workplace and the NHS needs right now are meaning, hope, belonging and growth. So meaning, all of us, in our work, need meaning in what we do. We need to know that we make a difference to patient care. Whatever we are, whatever we're doing, whoever we are in the organisation, we need that sense of uh, meaning. Uh, all of us need hope. Uh, it's tough uh, working in the NHS uh, right now, and it's tough trying to get a debate about it. If you try and big up the NHS and talk about its achievements, people will say to me, that's exactly the problem, Dean. You don't understand the size of the uh, challenge facing you, and you're part of the problem. If I try and talk about the NHS and the problems it faces, it, someone will say, ha, typical, you're, uh, you, you know, you're, you're doing it for uh, the, the Tory paymasters and you're trying to privatise the NHS. And there is no middle ground in that at the moment. Whichever one of those you adopt, that's the sort of way that you get uh, presented. So we've got to bring that hope into the workplace. Uh, we need that uh, very much in the NHS at the moment. And that's our job as leaders, to bring hope into the workplace. We hope that tomorrow's going to be better than today, that next week was better than last week, and that next year is going to be better than uh, this year. Uh, belonging, so meaning, hope, and belonging. I think all of us are very social uh, beings. However rational you might uh, play people out to be, and you know, however cool uh, they may be, we need a sort of sense of identity and belonging in the workplace. We need to spar and work with and relate to other people as part of a team. We've got to get that sort of sense of belonging in the workplace. And then finally, growth. Uh, all of us, I think, need to feel as though we're doing a better job than we did yesterday, that we've grown in un understanding of the job of work that we do. Uh, so I believe if, if we get more women into our board-level positions, we get better balance in the workplace, and I think that we've got more chance then, collectively, of bringing those solely needed things into the NHS of meaning, belonging, hope and growth. Thank you.